Hey, Kev, let's let's follow this trail over here. This looks like there might be something waiting down there. All right. Hey, wait a minute. Do you hear that? Yeah, I thought it was just me. What the heck is that? I don't know what that is. Whoa, do you smell that, too? That's unbelievable. Hey, look. What the? Hey, look, those, those branches are moving over there. What the heck is that? Holy cow, is that what I think it is? Look at that thing. It, oh my god. It's a freaking Sasquatch. Welcome to the Bigfoot Terror in the Woods Sightings and Encounters podcast. I am your host, W.J. Sheehan, author of the series Bigfoot Terror in the Woods Sightings and Encounters, 10 books available at Amazon in paperback and ebook formats. And if you're an audiophile, you can get volumes one through nine, and one of these days, volume 10, at Audible, iTunes, and Amazon as well. So pick up nine or ten copies, if you will. And now, may I introduce you to my brother and co-host, KJ Sheehan. Kev, how are you? I'm doing okay, Bill. How about you? Marvelous, marvelous. And uh, by the way, in case anybody was unaware, I did a... Last Sunday of the month, YouTube episode with Richard Serrett. Uh, last Sunday, and uh, that's out there. You can hunt us down at Strange Planet with Richard Serrett, S-Y-R-E-T-T. And I think you guys will enjoy that, uh, that YouTube slash podcast we did together last Sunday. It was pretty cool, Kev. Yeah, you're like rocking and rolling with all these guest appearances. <laughs> yeah, we have boo 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 boo. <laughs> boo boo. Yeah, we <laughs> Hey Yogi. Hey. <laughs> yeah, it was on a Bobo, uh, aka James Fay and uh Cliff Barrickman a couple of weeks ago and Richard Sunday night. I really enjoyed it. I like getting out there and uh getting in the mix with these dudes. And, uh, you know, if you're interested in having me as a guest on your podcast, BigfootTerrorInTheWoods.com, drop me a line and uh, we'll hook up. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, pretty cool. Very cool. Uh, hey, you guys, if you don't know and you wouldn't know, Kev was in a sailing regatta last weekend. How'd that go for you, Kev? That yeah, was pretty good. We had uh, beautiful weather. Actually, on Saturday it was beautiful. We got in three good races. Sunday, we had storms come in. We were scheduled to do two more, uh-huh. and we didn't get any in, but it was good. And people came in from as far away as California, Ohio, Florida. So we had a lot of fun as well. Yeah, I, the pictures you sent me were really neat, you know, to uh, uh, see you out there scooting along on the water's surface, you know? Yeah, yeah, they did a good job with the photographs, too. So it was fun. No Bigfoot around the edge of the lake, though, but I was looking. Now, what do they have? Some little chase boats snapping pictures of people? Yeah, they had a professional photographer out there this time, which was nice. So he had he was on a little uh, pontoon boat kind of following us around, yeah. taking pictures. Nice, man. Yeah, that's, it's that's, awesome. You know, yeah, it's a cool thing to do, you know? 
Yeah, we don't get a lot of pictures, and uh, I cherish them. You know, when you get some pictures of you out there having a great time, it's fantastic. Yeah, And then I always look around. I mean, you can see all the woods around the lake. I did kind of snoop around to see if anybody was watching us from the woods. (laughs) Anybody with hair. Yeah. (laughs) Long hair. Great face. Oh, you mean like me? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) All right, brother. What do we have in our cryptids in the news and other oddities segment? So today today we're going to do something a little different, Bill. And as you know... uh, our loyal fans out there, I, I rarely tell Bill what I'm going to talk about before the episode. So in this one, I don't think I've ever done it before, but I'm going to talk about an interesting disaster. Um, huh. And it does turn out that the disaster takes place in the hotbed of a lot of our Bigfoot sightings. But oh, as that's... far as we know, there wasn't a Bigfoot involved in this one. Interesting. Yeah, but it's pretty pretty cool story. So if you kind of, you know, if you're laying in bed, close your eyes, listen to this one, and imagine this taking place, okay? All right. Should I lay down now? What's that? Should I lay down now? No, don't lay down. You might fall asleep. <laughs> <laughs> All right, bro. All right. So this comes from our friends at historylink.org. Got to give them credit for this. So this is uh, took place, uh, this disaster, on March, te- March 1st in 1910. So wow. more than 100 years ago. Okay. And I never heard of this, Bill, but it's a train disaster that took place in Wellington, Washington. Mm. In Washington State, and it killed 96 people. Wow. Yeah. So I'm going to tell the story to you here. Uh, Okay, okay. So during the early morning hours of March the 1st, 1910, an avalanche roars down Windy Mountain near Stevens Pass in the Cascade Mountains. And this is a snow avalanche, by the way. Oh, boy. Taking with it two great northern trains and 96 victims. Oh, my God. It's one of the worst train disasters in U.S. history and the worst natural disaster with the greatest number of fatalities in Washington. Wow. And that you are right. That area is a hotbed. Oh, it's a hotbed. And I've been up there in Stevens Pass there and a lot of these towns. I can't recall that I've been to Wellington, but it, it takes place near Scenic. Washington, that's the name of the town. I've been there. And uh-huh. Leavenworth, Washington, where I've been camping. Uh, were you imprisoned in Leavenworth? This is a different Leavenworth. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> this is actually a beautiful uh, town that kind of recreates uh, like a German village. Okay. Yeah, pretty cool, Leavenworth, Washington. So anyway... Um, On February 23rd, so before the disaster happened, 1910, after a snow delay at the East Cascade Mountains town of Leavenworth, two great northern trains, the Spokane Local Passenger Train number 25 and the Fast Mail Train number 27, proceeded westbound towards Puget Sound, so kind of the greater Seattle area. Yeah. 
there were five or six steam locomotives, 15 boxcars, so kind of freight cars, um, passenger cars and sleeper cars. The trains had passed through the Cascade Tunnel from east to west, uh, from the east to west side of the mountains when snow and avalanches forced them to stop near Wellington in King County, Washington. Wow, so they actually stopped. They stopped. I wonder what communications were like back then on the rails. They had telegraph, that's it. Okay. Yep. And Wellington was a small town populated almost entirely with great northern railway employees. So they stopped there, right? So they were probably communicating uh, by saying, you know, and saying, hey, it's getting bad out here. You should stop when you get here. Yeah. Or at least putting up the signals to stop. Okay. The train stopped under the peak of Windy Mountain above a place called Ty Creek. Heavy snowfall and avalanches made it impossible for train crews to clear the tracks. And for six days, the trains waited there in blizzard and avalanche conditions. And in fact, on February 26th, the telegraph lines went down and communication with the outside world was lost. It's hard to believe in this day and age such things going on, but... It was the best they had at the time. Well, and even up there, Bill, um, it, up in Stevens Pass, I've driven up there in the snow, and they close that pass on a regular basis, and they have these, like, custom-made giant snow blowers yeah. to carve through the uh, the mountain pass there. Yeah, and I've seen them in action, and those things are beasts. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a serious place up there. Wow. Good place for the hairy man. Yeah, I don't know how to get around in this stuff. Yeah. You know, I remember watching some uh, uh, video of people snowshoeing. Yeah. And it looked like they were uh, stomping around on like a Christmas tree farm. And the guy pointed out that these were the tops of the trees. Yes. They were in like 60 feet of snow. I've been out there skiing, Bill, when I lived out in Washington State. It was one of the snowiest winters ever. And it was when I first moved out there, if you remember. And yeah. we were up on the ski lift, and I said to the person I was on the lift with, I said, it's weird that they have all these little Christmas trees up here. You know, up in the middle of nowhere on the mountain. And he yeah. said, those aren't little Christmas trees. Those are the tops of spruces. Yeah. <laughs> Which I didn't know that. It was like 40 feet of snow. Yeah. <laughs> and also the chairlift, you know, you ride on a chairlift. And usually you're up kind of high. On this one, your feet were like just above the snow. Oh, wow. That's funny. Yeah, it's really weird. Yeah, and of course, nobody told you. You're like, oh, these are low lips. I was never there before. I was like, oh, yeah. Kind of weird. Okay. Yeah, just high enough where a hairy man could come bolting out of the. Grab uh... your ski. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe pull you off of the lift. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> skis are too small for my feet. <laughs> All right. All right. So on February 26th, the telegraph lines went down. On the last day of February, get this, the weather turned to rain with thunder and lightning. Oh, boy. Thunder shook the snow-laden Cascade Mountains alive with avalanches. 
Oh, my God. On March 1st, sometime after midnight, Charles Andrews, a great northern employee, was walking, walking toward the warmth of one of the Wellington's bunkhouses when he heard a giant rumble. Hmm. He turned toward the sound. Oh, boy. In 1960, he described what he witnessed. So these are his words, Charles Andrews. White death moving down the mountainside above the trains. Relentlessly it advanced, exploding, roaring, rumbling, grinding, snapping. A crescendo of sounds that might have been the crashing of 10,000 freight trains. Oh, man. It descended to the ledge where the sidetracks lay, picked up cars and equipment as though they were so many snow-draped toys, and swallowing them up, they disappeared like a white, broad monster into the ravine below. Oh, my God. Yeah. What a description. So listen to this one. Okay. One of the other 23 survivors interviewed three days after the disaster stated, there was an electric storm raging at the time of the avalanche. Lightning flashes were vivid, and the tearing wind was howling down the canyon. Suddenly, there was a dull roar, and the sleeping men and women felt the passenger coaches lifted and borne along. When the coaches reached the steep declivity, they were rolled nearly a thousand feet and buried under 40 feet of snow. Wow. Yeah. Can you imagine you're in there and now you realize I'm alive? Wow. So another one, a surviving train conductor sleeping in one of the mail train cars was thrown from the roof to the floor of the car several times as the train rolled down the slope before it disintegrated when a train slammed into a large tree. Yeah. Wow. And in the days that followed, news reports of the tragedy that reached the rest of the country were largely inaccurate. On March 1st, there were reports of 30 feared dead. On March 2nd, there were 15 bodies recovered and 69 people missing. 150 men, mostly volunteers, are working to recover the dead. On March 3rd, a headline stated... Victims now reach 118. Hmm. The injured were sent to Wenatchee, Washington. The bodies of the dead were transported on toboggans down the west side of the Cascade to trains that carried them to Everett and Seattle. 96 people died in the avalanche, including 35 passengers, 58 railroad employees, and three railroad employees that were sleeping in cabins that were enveloped by the avalanche. The immediate cause of the avalanche was rain and thunder, but conditions had been set by the clear cutting of timber and the forest fires caused by steam locomotive sparks back then. So the, the slopes were open above the tracks and created an ideal environment for avalanches to occur. Unbelievable. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, see, I could see heavy rain infiltrating a deep snowpack and causing a shift. Yeah. But then you have these rumbles and the shaking 
of this unrelenting uh, thunder. Yeah. And uh, what a combination. Talk about a disaster cocktail. You had it going right there. Yeah, and they said that disaster struck again on January 22nd, 1916. So six years later, when eight passengers were killed, when an avalanche swept down Windy Mountain again and struck a westbound Great Northern passenger train, shoving two rail cars over an 80-foot embankment. Amazing, right? Bill? Can you hear me, Kevin? Now I can, yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm uh, trying to put myself in the recovery effort in such a uh, forsaken place. Uh, I can mean, you imagine the snow and the disaster and just getting in and out of where they were. How? No help. Remember, this was a railroad town. Yeah. Like, not a town created by people who want to ride on the railroad. This is a town where the workers stayed. Yeah. You know, probably because it looks like on the map, it's like the middle of uh, the Cascade Mountains. You know, kind of a natural place where things go wrong. Yeah, and it also said that there was over 50 railroad workers on the train. Exactly. I mean, I don't know how many railroad workers they had in the area, but it sounds like a whole bunch were whole on bunch that were train. on the train, yeah. So, and then they said that in 1929, they built a new tunnel that made the old grade where all the disasters happened obsolete. Mm-hmm. And that in when this was written in 2003, the 1929 tunnel was still in use. Wow, that's crazy. And but they must have, they must have made some modifications uh, outside of the tunnel because the tunnel the, that the trains didn't get hit in the tunnel. They got no, hit when yeah, they were yeah, out yeah. of the outside, tunnel. For sure. Right. But they say that the old grade, right, where uh, all this stuff happened, is now a hiking trail called the Iron Goat Trail. Okay. And you can go there and hike it. So, you know, our listeners out there, if you know about this area, you've been on the Iron Goat Trail, etc., you have any more details about this disaster... Write in, BigfootTerrorInTheWoods.com, contact us. We'd love to hear from you. I never heard yeah. of this, Bill, but I, again, it doesn't have the hairy man in it, doesn't have uh, any cryptids in it, but I thought it was pretty cool when I came across it. No, and of course, our first segment, for those of you who are new, is called Cryptids in the News and Other Oddities, and Kev, that certainly falls under the category of an oddity yeah, of, of course. And it's, and it's old, which, you know... If you're a listener of the podcast, I love these old stories from over 100 years ago. Yeah, I love them too because my imagination allows me to enter into that scene and uh, try to yeah, these imagine. Big steam trains chugging uh, along up the Cascade Mountains in the snow. Wow. I mean, wow. Yeah, yeah. And how many locos did it said were in these two trains? What did you say, five, five or six? Five or six, it said, yeah. Yeah, so that's the kind of power that was needed to move a few cars oh, yeah. through these grades and control them, you know? 100%, yeah. Wow, incredible, man. Kev, you remember how much Dad loved the old steam engines. Oh, yeah. And uh, folks, our father had a train set that he was always messing around with and... 
you know, we had the old uh, black and stainless steel locomotives, and uh, he knew everything about them, right, Kev? They're oh, legitimate. Yeah. He, he, he knew what they were. Them, what they were used for, et cetera. Good stuff. Yeah, yeah no, really good stuff. Well, that was great, Kev. Uh, something really out of the box, I'll tell you that, man. I was <laughs> never expecting a story about a train disaster. Yeah. And uh, we went from melon heads. <laughs> <laughs> we went from melon heads, which, uh, by the way, my friend uh, Jerry says he's a melon head. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a bit of a melon head, too, Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, I got a pretty interesting account here for uh, for our listeners. Uh, came to me by way of a fellow named Gunther Henkel. Gunther! Gunther! Henkel like the Henkel motor? Yeah, just like the Henkel plane. Ah. <laughs> Gunther Henkel, a resident of Boulder, Colorado. Ah. Uh, and this is what Gunther had to say about his encounter. It was July of 2009 that my wife Hilda and I had gone to spend a week in Mount Revelstoke National Park to take in a little relaxation and some hiking. We had planned a vacation around the summer months when the alpine meadows are in full bloom, being carpeted with yellow arnica, asters, blue lupine, scarlet paintbrush, and the white valerians. It very much reminds us of our youth in Germany. We had begun our day's hike from the campground near the Lindmark Trail, our destination being the meadow atop Revelstoke at some 6,300 feet. On the lowest slope, we were making our way through the mountain ash, green elders, wild cherries, red and black elders, and the black cottonwoods, which were interspersed with all of these huckleberry, blueberry, and salmonberry bushes that attract quite a few bears, so you must be careful. As you ascend a slope, the Douglas fir, Giant cedar and white pine start to take over. And after some four or five thousand feet, it's the Engelmann spruce and the alpine firs that dominate the landscape. Now, folks, I just have to stop for a minute. <laughs> I just read that to you. And so help me. Some of the detail that comes in in these, you talk about. Uh, oh, it's painting a picture, Bill. Yeah, but I mean botanical knowledge of these people. Having made the summit, we had entered into what is a rolling alpine meadow, with Mount Tilly and Mount Mackenzie being in full view in the distance. Spruce and firs are scattered in patches and small groupings here at the summit. We had sat down on some small boulders for a well-needed rest after the climb. I think we had been sitting for maybe a half hour in the sun, when Hilda pointed out to me that one of the spruce trees, some two or three hundred yards away from our position, 
was thrashing back and forth in a violent and most unusual fashion. We sat watching this for some ten minutes or so, fully expecting to see a bear emerge from the trees. When nothing of the sort happened, we continued to watch and wait. The tree having stopped shaking, Hilda and I decided to move a bit closer in hopes of seeing some type of wildlife in the trees. I think we had advanced perhaps 50 yards or so when a loud sound, what I will describe as a violent roar, erupted from the grouping of trees directly ahead of us. This was the same patch where the one tree had been shaking violently only minutes before. This roar was so loud that I could feel the pressure from it in my body, despite us being some 200 yards away from its origin. At least that was my estimation at the time. Neither of us had ever heard a grizzly roar, and we both believed that this was in fact what we had heard. The roar had frozen us in our tracks, and we actually started to slowly retreat when a large, hairy beast on two legs came running out of the trees some 50 yards and stopped abruptly in the meadow. It was looking directly at us, flailing its arms around in the air and thrashing its head and upper body back and forth while growling. The growl sounded more like a deep, guttural whine. The speed with which this beast had run the 50 yards was so fast that if it had continued, it would have been on us in a matter of seconds. That would have been our demise for certain. I grabbed Hilda's hand and we slowly started to back away not wanting to startle the beast. As we did so, it made yet another fast charge towards us, once again stopping after some 20 or 30 yards. This charge was followed yet again by the growling and flailing of the arms and the head just as it had done on the first charge. The size of this thing was immense, and its actions told us that its intent was vicious, to say the least. The two of us kept slowly backing away as this beast was intermittently continuing to growl and throw its arms ahead around and head around in front of us. We had actually backed away now some 75 yards or so when the two of us turned and started to walk. At first, our steps were slow and cautious, and then we quickened our pace, making it over the side of the meadow to head back down the slope of Revelstoke. As my wife and I made our descent from the meadow, we couldn't help thinking that this creature was going to follow us over the side at some point, and we were on edge. Finally, we reached the bottom, and when we were well clear of the trees... The two of us sat down for a well-deserved break and began to talk. Both of us now knew we had encountered a Bigfoot and thought that in some way, shape, or form, 
we had walked into some type of activity it was planning in this meadow atop Revelstoke. We had become intruders in its territory, and it wasn't happy about us being there. Although it could have easily crossed the entire meadow and attacked us, it didn't, which indicated to us that it was trying to scare us off. And it had done one heck of a job doing so. Being so far away from us, it's hard to say how big it really was, having nothing to measure it against. The thing that impressed me most was the depth of its roar. It had to have come from deep within the bowels of this very substantial beast. The second thing was how quickly it was able to move with relative ease. During both the charges towards us, it covered a large amount of ground in what appeared to be six or eight very rapid steps. They appeared to be fast leaps that were very hard to distinguish separately. The succession of these leaps was so quick that to our eyes it seemed like a blur. However tall it may have been, its physique was that of a bodybuilder, fully covered in reddish-brown hair that appeared to be somewhat... to, to be somewhere between, say, four and 10 inches long, depending on the area of the body you looked at. This encounter was so dramatic and life-changing that the two of us just had to tell you about it. Seeing is certainly believing, and neither of us had really given much thought to the reality of their existence until that day in the meadow, how quickly things change. Hmm. What do you think of that, Kev? I'll tell you what, Bill, like, when you get a chance, if you haven't already, and all you folks out there, Google, uh, in Google Maps, Mount Revelstoke National Park, and you see this beautiful picture with a lot of the flora and fauna that the, uh, you know, the, the person you interviewed, Bill, describes, all the different flowers. It's spectacular. Yeah, and evidently, Gunther... Uh, Gunther knew what he was looking yeah, at. No. And had, of course had I knew. <laughs> I'm not stupid. <laughs> I'm German. <laughs> and Hilda knows too. <laughs> I'll put you in the cooler. That's funny. You know, Kev, uh, our distant relatives from Norway... Uh, many of them uh, moved up to uh, Wisconsin. Yeah, Racine, Wisconsin. Right, and uh, our great aunt Olga Wolf. Uh, you know, these people, I think they went to some of these areas because they wanted to move to the United States, but they also wanted an area that reminded them of their homeland, you know, yes. a little, little cold, a little snow, a little... Frozen tundra. Yeah, you know, so they didn't Good want to break. Skiing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Into the long boat, Olaf. <laughs> Stroke. Stroke. You got to pound the drum. Stroke. 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 Where's my long sword? <laughs> it's stuck in somebody. Oh, again. I forgot. <laughs> no, but this place... 
Mount Revelstoke National Park in British Columbia. Looks like it's about halfway between Calgary and Vancouver, west of Banff, which we know how beautiful Banff, British Columbia is. And yeah, and uh, I have some accounts from uh, Banff. Yeah, and just north, Bill, of the Kootenai National Forest. Yeah, that's, so this is that a, whole this area. This is a Bigfoot hotbed, and by the way, this Mount Revelstoke is in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. So no shocker, right, no, Kev, that no. they have an encounter in this meadow atop this 6,300-foot Mount Revelstoke. No. It's incredible. So you have the Kootenai, you've got Banff, you've got uh, this Nash- Mount Revelstoke National Forest. All of this area is just rife with sightings. And it's not the same beast, my friends. No, and when I lived in Spokane, Bill, I told you the stories. We used to go, my friend in Spokane had a cabin on this little lake that's looked like it's south of Mount Revelstoke National Park, but in the wilderness. He had this little cabin, a family cabin on a lake called Christina Lake in British Columbia. And I remember being up there, seeing how beautiful it was, but it was the first time in my life where... You, you could put your hand right in front of your face at night, and it was so dark outside that you literally could not see your hand in front of your face. Yeah. Yeah. It was amazing. I experienced that once in my life, and it was actually frightening. It's a little frightening. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Uh, you almost think, like, there's something wrong. Like, will my eyes get used to it, and it doesn't happen? <laughs> and it doesn't happen. Of course, you know, I'm talking about where there's no moon, you know. Like tonight, yep. I'm out here on the North Carolina coast, and it's must be nearly a full moon. And I'm looking outside, and mm-hmm. uh, right behind the dog man with the red eyes that's looking in the window, it looks oh. kind of light out there. Well, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> He's coming in. Oh, hello, dog man. <laughs> and who's that nasty little child with him? Oh, I'd just like to use the <laughs> telephone. Can my dog have some food? I don't have a telephone, you little black-eyed runt. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a pretty incredible encounter. That is an incredible encounter. And this thing bluff-charging them, not once but twice. Uh, It just uh, makes you wonder, man. You know, like I say, Kev... You meet Bigfoot and go home. You've had a really good day. These people, <laughs> right, these people were very lucky. You got that right. You know, obviously this thing was like betwixt and between uh, as far as committing to an attack or just seeing what the first advance would do. And uh, how about them saying that the steps it was taking was so fast that it seemed like a blur? I know. That and people wonder how these things can move or run down an animal. No, I mean, we they hear the can... stories about them too moving vertically. I think is so important. You know, you look at this uh, hillside slash cliffside, and you're like, nothing could go up that. And then yeah. from a distance, so you see this Bigfoot just kind of cruising up it. Do you remember? You know what's coming to my mind, Kev? Do you remember? And we'll get to it again, folks. I, I like to dig into the archives. Uh, 
You remember that account? Where was it? From Vermont, the fly fisherman in the river? Uh, it was two guys, I think a nephew and an uncle, and they heard some splashing and saw that Bigfoot trying to slap at fish. Oh, it couldn't yeah, even yeah, get yeah. them. Yeah. But when they backed away and then were watching it from afar, they saw it step out of the river up this embankment that was, I don't even remember. What did the guy say? The embankment was like 10 feet tall. I thought it was taller, With, yeah. but I, I Maybe, and nothing to grab nothing onto. To grab I remember on, that. Nothing to grab cruised up it. Yeah, he just took like one giant leg stretch, and then the next one had him on top of it, and he walked away. There you go. I mean, that is freaking nuts. No doubt. And I don't care what this thing weighs. If it was 600 pounds, and catapulted instead, uh, itself up on a couple of stretches up to its head. Yeah. I don't even know how that happens, no. you know, let alone a 1,000 pounds or more. No. Incredible. Wild stuff, man. So what do we have in our uh, listener uh, we, mail We segment? got some good listener mail, Dale. All right. So this first one comes in from Jeremy in Indiana. Right and the subject is episode 135, What is Making These Three-Toed Prints? <whistles> yep. And Jeremy writes, I love the show and what you guys do first and foremost. I found your podcast about two months ago, and I've been binge listening through your catalog. I came upon episode 135, What? And uh, about what is leaving these three-toed prints. Mm -hmm. Well, I've been sitting on a few pics of something for about two years now, and I've decided to share them with you guys. I want to remain mm -hmm. anonymous, and I personally don't care if you decide to share this with other people, uh, where or when it happened, but just don't use my name. These photos I have to share came from the Hoosier National Forest, near Potoka Lake. I don't know what I saw, but the print in the picture came from the picture of whatever this thing is, and I took them, and I can send you the original shot and a close-up image, and would love to know what you guys think this is. And also, mm -hmm. after I started looking at the original, I noticed something I didn't see at the time I snapped the pic. To the bottom left, it looks like something is peeking behind a tree while this other thing is walking away. The print hmm. lo looks three-toed to me and was five inches wide and 14 inches long. Not huge, but much bigger than my size 12s. My encounter was quick and left me wondering what exactly I saw. I walked outside to smoke a cigarette and was luckily playing with my phone when I heard a twig snap. I looked up and saw this very burly, wide, dark thing take one step toward me, I guess to check me out, and then turned heel and started walking. I pulled my phone up and took a pic of it moving away. I went inside for a few minutes, dumbfounded. And and what you dumbfounded, wondering what did I see? A hunter in a ghillie suit or a bear? Even though we have no bear in Indiana. So I went mm -hmm. back out with my son and walked to the area where I had seen and the print was there. That's it really. I don't know what I saw and probably will never know, 
but I would love to know what you guys think. Thank you from the hills of southern Indiana. Isn't that wild? 14 inches long and 5 wide. Yeah, Certainly big. substantial. I'm looking down at my size 13th, and that's big. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. What do you make of that, Kev? Three-toed. I don't know what that is, Bill. Yeah. Yeah, and it's not the first time people have talked about three-toed prints, right. you know. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, when I, I know, saw man. the subject, I was thinking dog man, but it doesn't sound like dog man. Well, it may have been, but uh, I don't know. You know, something doesn't leave a print in the ground unless it's legitimate, right? you know. And uh, I'm not going to say that uh, what Jeremy just told us is a, a sack of baloney, no, you know, but no. uh, it, it just uh, it boggles the mind trying to wrap your thoughts around such By things. By the way, you Bill, know? this dog man is still looking in the window out here. Well, why don't you give him something to eat so he goes away? <laughs> you know what I mean? You mean throw some get, lead at him? No, give him a plate of Chinese food and a fork. <laughs> <laughs> Heavy on the mustard. General Sal's chicken? Hello. <laughs> yeah. Hello. <laughs> grab grab that little jug of hot sauce and splash it on there, Heavy. Hey, there you go. <laughs> All right. All right. So this one comes in from Julie and Paul. Two different people, Julie and Paul, from upstate New York. Okay. And the subject is harmful effects of UFO encounters studied by Stanford scientists. Hmm. Hi, KJ and Bill. On the Tucker Carlson show today, uh, dated 3-8-22, so back in March, under his UFO encounters segment, Tucker interviewed Dr. Gary Nolan. Dr. Nolan is an immunologist from Stanford that studies the harmful effects to humans from UFO encounters. We were amazed by this interview and think you will be too. It first aired on Fox Nation, but the full interview may be seen on YouTube. We're avid listeners to your podcast and want you to know how much it means to us. My husband, Paul, suffers from Parkinson's disease. As the disease progresses, it's affecting its, his facial muscles, muscles, making it more difficult to smile. However, when your show comes on each week, he is all smiles, and we get to share some good laughs together. <laughs> Thank you for giving us those happy moments. Sincerely, Julian Paul. Well, come on, Paul, laugh for us. <laughs> but seriously, Paul, we are praying for you. That Parkinson's, it's a nasty beast. Not as nasty as the hairy man, but uh, yeah, nasty, nasty just the same. So hang in there, Paul and Julie. Thanks for taking good care of Paul, and thanks for writing into us. We'll be praying for both of you. Yeah, fantastic, folks. And it's, you know, Kevin, it really does my heart good. Uh, the comments that come in from people. I know. Uh, about what you and I are doing. You know, I mean, we're having some fun doing this, and it's, it's a strange thing that we got involved in here. But, man, you know what? When the people write in and 
tell you how much it means to him. And then you get this little story about uh, Julie and Paul. Man, you got to keep going, bro. Uh, yeah, and, <laughs> and folks, you know, Bill and I, you know, we became podcasters now. I guess we are legitimate podcasters. Five years in and all of you out there listening. I'm, but, you know, we talk about it and you probably say, oh, you're exaggerating. I mean, when we got started... I told Bill, he's like, how many listeners do you think we'll have? I'm like, I have no idea. Our, our family doesn't even want to listen to us. <laughs> <laughs> so, In fact, they want to disown us. Yeah, I mean, right, Bill? They don't listen to us. No. <laughs> yeah, every time I see somebody, I'm like, do you listen to the podcast? They're like, what's the name I again? I once, I think. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you know, people, my, my my relatives down here, Bill, your relatives, they'll say to me, like, are you still doing that podcast thing? <laughs> yeah, yeah, like they could care less, you know? Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, well, so thank you and Julie and Paul, and we are praying for you, and thank you to all of you that write in. All right, we're going we're gonna to end with one funny uh, email here that also brings back memories from one of our older podcasts. Okay. So this comes in from Sergio. And the subject hey. is, could a Sasquatch squish a squash? <laughs> says, hey, Bill and Kevin, I'm a big fan of the show and listen every week. It was some time ago I heard you guys talking about how much wood could a woodchuck chuck? Well, how oh, yeah. about how much squash could a Sasquatch squish? If a Sasquatch <laughs> could squish squash. I love it. <laughs> By the way, that's not that easy to say, Bill. Yeah, say it three times fast and I'll give you an autographed book. Are you kidding me? Say it fast now. How much squash could a Sasquatch squish if a Sasquatch could squish squash? That book's yeah, that's once. You failed. You had to do it three times <laughs> fast. Maybe next time. <laughs> I thought you were going to say I didn't form it. I didn't, form it. Uh, I didn't put it in the form of a question. Alex, thank you for reminding me. Yeah, and you Sergio didn't put it in the form of a by question. saying, much love to both of you guys and keep up all the hard work. The hairy man is definitely out there. So always carry more gun than you think you're going to need. <laughs> I love it, man. Thank you, Sergio. Well, that, thanks, Sergio. And that'll get a chuckle out of Paul. One hundred percent. All right, folks, awesome. thank you for listening. Give us five stars on your favorite podcast player. And thank you so much for all the emails as well. Yeah, and remember, folks, if you should find yourself in Revelstoke, the Bonf, the Kootenay, or anywhere else, you better remember just one thing. Always carry more gun than you think you're going to need. Sleep tight. <laughs>